Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians and look with me at the 16th verse. Verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, know we him no more. Well, congregation, uh, we've been working our way through this fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians and seeking to discern the Apostles' uh, message to the church at Corinth, but also to we ourselves. He is seeking to contend for the spiritual well-being of that congregation by pointing them to eternal and spiritual realities. It is a searching chapter, and as we've gone through it, I've marveled at the depth and riches of the Word of God in this portion. And as I uh, come to the 16th chapter, it's striking how the Word of God really points us to the measure of true religion, true godliness, and true Christianity. There would be many who would think that it uh, concerns the realm of the conduct only, that if you can clean, out your, clean up your external appearance, if you can have a good reputation among others, that that is what God requires of you, that that is the measure of true holiness. But the message of this text and of other parts of the Bible is rather different than that. That even the thoughts of your mind, the things that pass through your thinking throughout the day, God has something to say about them. God has a standard that he would examine them by. And ultimately, it's by the standard of our thinking and what it is that we think on a daily basis that we can come to discern whether we are partakers of God's grace or no. You notice how it speaks of know. And wherefore, henceforth, we know no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. And this is a speaking of the activity of the mind. The intellect is at work throughout our conscious lives, making determinations of truth and falsehood, of right and wrong. And this is what it is that the apostle is saying. And I think that if you compare it with his message elsewhere in the scripture, you'd see that there's a very clear theme in his instruction on this point. He says, for example, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, and be not conformed to this world but ye be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable 
and perfect will of God. Or likewise, Romans 8 and verse 2. For to be carnally or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Why would the apostle use this expression of fleshly minded or carnally minded? He uses that also in our text, doesn't he? Where he speaks of knowing after the flesh. You know, the flesh is the literally just the stuff that makes up the human body. And sometimes it's used in that way to refer to um, our physical bodies. But more often in the uh, in the apostles' writings, it is referring rather to the principle of sin and evil which governs this world. It is referring to the activity of the evil one seeking to subject all of humanity unto his destructive devices and lead them away from the God of creation and salvation. This is the thinking, the fleshly thinking that is held forth here. And, and Paul, speaking for all true Christians, says that henceforth there is no place for that in him nor others who partake of grace. It's a very searching text congregation, and it was a challenge to, to wrestle with it this past week. And I would preface my remarks this uh, message by saying that as we plumb into something of the, of the depths of darkness that belongs to this way of thinking, we ought to rightly apply it to ourselves. It's not the case that any Christian who um, falls into this kind of thinking or yet battles against this kind of thinking is certainly not a true partaker of grace. But at the same time, we do say that there is a decisive change the apostle is speaking of. There is a henceforth. There is a from now on. From, there is a never again. And so there is a work that is done such that there is a change to the thinking that we put this to death and progressively think after the pattern of God's spirit and truth. And so with that in mind, I'd like to seek to unfold these uh, things from this text and simply uh, referring you to the theme fleshly thinking. Fleshly thinking. And we'll consider two things. First, how this thinking concerns man. And second, how this thinking concerns Christ. The thinking concerning man and the thinking concerning Christ. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, know we him no more. So let's take the first part of that verse. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. And it's a good translation of the Greek at this point. It's speaking of um, that there is to be no one who is known in this way. No one that you encounter 
you are to regard or judge or think about in the way of the flesh. So at this point, the Bible is seeking to examine our hearts and to cause us to reflect perhaps on the past week and the people that you have thought about. The people that have passed through your mind, through your memory and recollection, whom you have encountered and spent time with, and to ask yourself the simple question, what is it that you think about other people? And when we um, subject that test to ourselves, what the Bible is wanting us to consider is, are we thinking about other people by factoring in the truth of God, the law of God, and the sight of eternity. The reality that every single person that we encounter is made in the image of God and has a never-dying soul that will spend eternity in one of two places, either in heavenly glory and happiness or eternal misery in hell. And are we factoring in the glorious truths of the gospel, that there is salvation in a Savior provided by the true and living God, whom sinners may call upon and receive his salvation? What would that mean? What would that mean to think about other people without regard to those things? Well, I think that uh, the first uh, thing to be said is that there is a way of thinking about other people that is characterized by selfishness. Characterized by selfishness. And I think that this hardly needs explanation in our own day, does it? That the great uh, many people in this world they would deal with others and think about others in terms of what they can get from them, in terms of how it is that they can benefit their own interests, their own pleasures, and their own desires. And everyone else around them is just a means to that end. That is the dark heart that is exposed here. This is the fleshly thinking that characterize all those outside of Jesus Christ. And I think that if, if you want to see what this looks like when it is uh, unrestrained by God's uh, power and, um, and goodness, as it often is in the days in which we live, it, it perhaps helps to look at the second chapter of Timothy, or the second epistle to Timothy in the third chapter Beginning there at verse 1. Here's what Paul wrote there. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, for su from such turn 
away. Now, I think that there's so many expressions of the selfishness that Paul goes on in some length, but I think the first thing he says is, is worth reflecting upon. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Is that not the essence of selfishness? There's all sorts of circumstances in which this can be expressed in the ways that people trample on the good name of others. They will accuse others, slander their reputation, expose things that are uh, unkind about them or or unappealing about them and, and use that in order to get ahead in the workplace or to get ahead in a, in a social circle. You can look at it in, in family life. You know, I think one of the reasons that um, the devil has had such success in attacking the family is sometimes the great ungodliness and abuse that can happen in families. People who are in the family can sometimes uh, be very cruel to those who are who are close to them and 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 maybe in in great ways but even in small ways tearing down those who are closest to you and i think the examples re- really multiply when you would subject all of your choices in life your plans for the future the desires of your heart how much of it is focused upon the needs of others? Well, I think that we would do well to examine our hearts in, in this way and to ask ourselves when we think about others, is it just another step on the, on the ladder to get up higher for ourselves or are we seeking to build others up, to express love towards others? That's... That's really the dividing line between one who is a true Christian and one who, who is not. Well, there's, uh, there's that. We see that there is selfishness uh, in this fleshly mindset. There's also what I'll call man-pleasing. Man-pleasing. And for this, it's simply... Uh, going, uh, looking at it from a slightly different angle. There would be those who are, um, for whom conscious uh, self-benefit um, is really what's driving their thinking. But sometimes it can manifest itself in this way. You're seeking to please others and make other people happy with you to the detriment of other considerations, even those that concern the honor of God. And Paul himself uh, spoke about this directly in the book of Galatians, chapter 1 and verse 10. Do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now, there's, there's that choice that, that comes. Will you please God above all? Will that be the motive and the goal of your life, or will it be pleasing other people? And I fear sometimes there's great confusion about this, even in the, the Christian community, because we speak about loving others, and rightly so. The law of Christ is the law of love. He said in the Golden Rule, 
Love others as you would have yourself to be loved. Treat others as you would have yourself to be treated. And of course, it's all defined by the holy law of God as to what that looks like. But it's perhaps a, um, a, a confusion in our thinking often, maybe particularly today, that means that you will be acting in such a way that people will have good things to say about you, that people will be pleased with you, they will commend you, they will, they will ultimately like you. And so you'll be popular. People will look at you and say, there is someone for whom we can say nothing against, an upstanding, uh, good fellow or, uh, or a lady, whatever the case may be. That's, that can live in our hearts, right? And there's nothing ultimately wrong with being well-regarded by others. There is such a thing as having a good reputation. However, when we are living in a realm and a time governed by the power of Satan to such great measure, we need to understand that pleasing others is not the measure of godliness. That when you would think about others, you ought to have regard to their well-being, their physical well-being, and their eternal well-being. No matter who they may be, they have a never-dying soul. And every single action that you take, every um, every interaction with them, everything that you do that concerns someone else, it will have an impact on others. It will communicate love or hatred to them. But the measure of whether it is love or hatred is not whether they have good things to say about you. It is whether, according to the standard of the word of God, you are having regard to their well-being their well-being, especially spiritually and eternally. And so you can immediately see that there is a tension here. You have to choose. If you would be conformed to the pattern of this world, then you will seek to go with the flow. You will seek to speak and act and think in a way that others will commend and applaud and celebrate regardless of whether it is right or wrong. On the other hand, if you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind and the truth of God, by the grace of Christ, then by necessity, you will be chafing against the patterns of, uh, of the world. And, and even those whom you love dearly and would desire communion with, desire to to be friendly with and to cooperate with, inevitably there must be misunderstandings. If there is not a unity grounded not in uh, the customs and fashions of our day, but according to an accurate understanding of the word of God. So we can examine ourselves rightly. If you had to choose between being more popular and liked by those whom you respect, and being more godly, being more holy, pleasing the Lord and obeying his commandments, which is it that is more important to you? Which is it that fixates your thinking? Is 
your primary concern at the end of the day. What is it that other people will think? Or is it, what does the Lord say? What is pleasing to my Savior? Very different modes of thinking, I think you'll agree. But this is well I'd like to draw out here. And uh, I think here we come to see how the, um, how the thinking can really impact uh, the daily lives of real human beings. And for this, I'd like to speak about partiality. Partiality. And uh, there are different ways for this. You could speak, for example, about discrimination. Um, but uh, partiality is, I, th- I think, more of a, of a biblical word, at least in older translations. So let's use that. And it has regard to how you treat uh, different kinds of people. For this, please turn to the book of James, chapter 2. And we'll beginning at reading at verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith... Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, And say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place. And say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? So you see there, uh, the, the, the leader James, who is a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, who wrote that epistle, Um, He's connecting, in verse 4 especially, partiality, being partial, and judges of evil thoughts. So the connection here is how you're thinking about different kinds of people may lead you to treat those people differently, unfairly, unequally, we could say, and the result would be... uh, essentially not upholding the faith of Jesus Christ, if you follow his, his reasoning here. I mean, his example is very plain. You have two people coming into the assembly, into the church gathering, into the worship service, and one has the clothing that is uh, indicating he's a wealthy person, and the other uh, obviously is in a much more impoverished condition because his clothing is is in fact vile. He's a poor man. And so the one is brought into a position of honor, sit here um, in the most prime seating, and the other is said, okay, well, uh, you can't have such a good place. In fact, um, why don't you sit here under my footstool? So the, the principle here is that here is the church of God. Here is this holy gathering for worship. And what is happening? The world's thinking is entering in. The rich and the wealthy and the privileged treated with honor, while the poverty-stricken one is treated with contempt. Discrimination, 
partiality. And there's many different modes this could take. And, and sadly, as James says, it can sometimes also take place in the church where when something is being uh, put forward, right, the concern is not so much uh, what is said, but who is saying it. That is, that is a, a, a dangerous place to be because it ought to always be the case that we are thinking in terms of the Bible and the truth of God and not according to um, some sort of rank or privilege. You see, it ought to be that no matter who we are, no matter our station in life, no matter our wealth, our, our background, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every person here, and indeed everyone who would desire to come into this place, They are equally sinners. They are equally transgressors of the law of God. And they are equally made in the image of God. And so it's the case that any form of racism is anathema to the Christian religion. Any form of of class snobbery is squarely against the law of God. But likewise, it can take all sorts of different forms. We think about examples like in the book of Galatians, Paul records how even the apostle Peter was sort of swept away with the false teaching of his day. And and, uh, when he saw that there were some Jewish believers who thought that that everyone needed to be circumcised, well, he, he started to treat his Gentile Christian brothers differently, those who were not Jews, and, and to sort of give them the cold shoulder, partiality. And so Paul had to rebuke him to his face and to stand for the truth of the gospel. And there you have a, a Christian man, a godly man, Peter, falling into the ways of the world, falling into this sin of partiality. So we all have to examine our own hearts and say, could it be the case that there are people that you are keeping at arm's length simply because they're different than yourself? Could it be the case that you are showing partiality when it comes to, for example, personality type? There are certain people you naturally connect with, people whom it is easy to talk to, so you spend more time with them. But the saints over on the other side of the room who maybe you don't have much shared experience with, I won't bother talking to them. It's just a waste of time. Or, you know, you would look at, for example, the sort of people that you invite into your home. Of course, it's a blessing to have, for example, extended family and uh, close friends and to make sure that we're inviting them into our home. But the teaching of the Bible is that Christians are to show hospitality, which literally means in the Greek, stranger love, love for the stranger. In other words, you're to stretch yourself and to embrace those who are different than yourself, who may not even be Christians. And in that expression of love, that you would be testifying to the fact that you're not being partial. You're not just uh, showing love when it's easy, but when, when perhaps it's hard. And I think if we're, if we're being honest, and I, perhaps even you're thinking as, 
has gone here. It's hard to ignore the reality that there's all sorts of ways in which partiality is creeping into the life of the church through ways that we never thought was possible. You could think, for example, about people's medical decisions. Or you could think of, for example, uh, different political uh, uh, positions that people might have and people would say well if you if you disagree with me on this then then really this is so fundamental then we can no longer be loving or respectful to one another but it ought not to be that even if something is is so important to you as that that it can never take priority over the fundamental things of the christian faith even those things that unite us together. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, obedience to the law of love, the unity of the truth of God. It's these things which we must subject our thinking to. So we've seen that in the first place, this fleshly thinking as it concerns man, but let's also consider this as well. Not only uh, thinking that concerns man, but also thinking that concerns Christ. Thinking that concerns Christ. Because you'll notice that, um, that, Peter, uh, that Paul rather, likewise speaks about uh, this in verse 16. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Now, it's interesting, if you would read Calvin's commentary on this verse, he actually speaks about how the false teachers of his day were seeking to twist this verse in a very unusual direction. Um, there was a man named um, Servetus, for example, who would seek to argue that this is denying that Christ had human flesh, or that, for example, he no longer has human flesh now that he's in heaven. Well, of course, it's contrary to the scripture. We believe in a Savior who is both God and man, both now and forever. Jesus Christ did not relinquish his human flesh when he ascended to the right hand of the Father after rendering his life as a sacrifice for sin and rising from the dead. No, he is man forever, and he will be man when he returns to judge the living and the dead in great glory. So that's not the meaning of this verse at all, rather like the first part of the verse, it is speaking about those who know or regard Christ after the flesh, according to the fleshly thinking of this present evil age. Now, what can we say about that? Well, I think the first thing to say is that there's a reason Paul uh, goes here, and that is that these two things are intimately connected. How you think about others is going to flow from how you think of Christ. If there is a problem with how you're thinking about other people, ultimately it's because you have not rightly apprehended and applied the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to your own thinking. If you would really grab hold of that truth of who Jesus is and what he's done according to the scriptures and your thinking about others will follow from that. What is thinking about Christ after the flesh? Well, I think uh, the first thing to be said about it is that it is 
thinking that does not take seriously the claims of Christ. Does not take seriously the claims of Christ. And you could think of uh, the example, for example, of Paul himself. Paul himself in the book of Acts, the ninth, uh, the ninth chapter. It records how this man who was known as Saul of Tarsus was breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord and went unto the high priest. And his design, of course, was to persecute the church of the living God to pursue these followers of this man, Jesus, to lead them away in bonds and to wipe out this religion of the Nazarene, as he was called. And so what is it that uh, this man was doing? Well, he was one who was familiar at some level with the claims of this Christ, that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the chosen of God, that indeed he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he rose from the grave and he accomplished all righteousness for his people. But for this man, Saul of Tarsus, it filled him with such rage. He breathed out threatenings and slaughters, resistance and opposition to the claims of Christ. And we see that today, don't we? There'd be many, many people who, when they hear the claims of Christ as Savior and as Lord, as the one who saves from both the guilt and the power of sin, as the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. When those things are impressed upon their heart and consciences, there is chafing there is resistance there is opposition there is rage and it's clear from their defiant hatred of the cause of christ in our own day but of course it can also take the form that's more subtle and less visible to the untrained eye for you see there can be those who even sit in places like this and may have, ha- have done so all their lives, and yet have never once had regard to the claims of Christ in a true and sincere way. Yes, you know that Jesus is the Son of God, and yet do you truly worship him? Yes, you know that Christ died to save sinners, but if you applied unto him and unto his blood and death, Yes, you know that he is the one who demands your loyalty. He demands your total subjection unto his will. And yet you will not bend the knee. You will not fall down and give your all unto him. How can you claim? How can you claim to take the things of Christ seriously, to even affirm the truth of the Bible if you've not yielded unto it? Ultimately, we have to say it's, it's a problem of the heart and it's a problem of the thinking. If this was truly felt by you, it could not but yield the response of submission. But you do not submit. Notice how it went there in Acts chapter 9. And as he journeyed, it says in verse 3, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, 
Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What does he mean? Well, you think you see the pricks, they would be these uh, metal rods that you jab into the side of a beast of burden in order to get it uh, going in the right direction if you're plowing a field or whatever. So it is this rebellious man, and yet this very religious man, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he was kicking against the pricks. He knew something of Christ's claims. And he resisted them. And he said, I will not have this man to rule over me. But how blessed it was there in verse 6. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city. And so on. What will you have me to do? Here is a heart in which the Lord has begun to work. A a heart that the Lord has made teachable. And that's what the Lord is also in the business of doing today. Oh, my friend, hear the claims of Christ as Savior and Lord. Respond unto him and respond unto him in faith. I think there's a a second thing we can say about uh, this fleshly mode of, of thinking when it comes to Christ. And that is that it concerns the cross of Christ. How is it that you think of the cross of Christ? And as I was drawn to to speak about this, I was thinking about a passage which we read recently on New Year's Day from Matthew 16. We didn't really touch on this, but it follows uh, from his great confession. Peter's great confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gives those great promises that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But then right after that great scene, we have this rebuke issued to this man, Peter. And you see in Matthew 16 and verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So what is Jesus doing? He's predicting the future. Jesus will be crucified. He will die upon a cross. And what is it that happens next? Verse 22, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter hears this message of the cross, and he's offended by it. That can't be, Lord. He begins to rebuke even the Lord Jesus himself. That can't be. That can't be. And what is it that happens next? And he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. He's not thinking according to God's truth, but according to the logic of men. Jesus unveils the cross, and what is it that Peter says? That can't be. 
And so it is with many people today. There would be people who would hear the message of the cross that God has poured forth his wrath upon Jesus Christ, the substitute, and that the agonies of hell were felt by this one, even the God-man, Jesus Christ, in the place of sinners. And what is it that offends them? Well, I would wager to say that they have never come to regard their own sins as deserving of death and hell. And the very fact that they would need such a substitute is astonishing to them. The thought that God would pour forth wrath upon their sins whether in their own persons or a substitute, is too awful for them to contemplate because they love their sin. They live in their sin. They are enslaved to their sin. They cannot part with their sin. And so the cross of Christ, it is a savor of life unto life for them who receive it, but a savor of death unto death for those who despise it. For those who would hear the message of the gospel of Christ and him crucified, it offends every fiber of their being. It is a declaration declaration of war upon the thinking that yet enslaves them. And so they are offended. But I think as well, this thinking also takes place in another thing. And I think Jesus really zeroes in on it in his response to Peter. You notice what he said to Peter after he'd said uh, that he was speaking for Satan here. He said, as, as he went on in verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I think this was especially what um, offended Peter about this. Here is Peter, a follower after the Messiah, this one who is promised to inherit the nations. And Jesus unveils to him the mystery and revelation that he will conquer in the way of death and suffering in the cursed cross. And Peter puts two and two together and he says, well, if I am a follower of this man, of Christ, and if he is conquering by way of suffering, and so it must also be for me. He's already put it together. If Christ must go to the cross, then what will I experience? Well, Jesus spells it out for him. There is a cross for you as well, Peter. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. What will a profit a man if he gains the whole world, Peter, and loses his soul? Well, many people make that bargain every day, don't they? I will take the world and lose my soul. I'll take the passing pleasures of sin for a season and I will lose my soul. I will give myself to, to money or sex or worldly entertainment unto the pastimes of this life and never have regard unto my own soul. That is the thinking of the flesh, the thinking of death, the thinking of hell and Satan. 
But is there there another way? Oh, blessed be God, there is. That word from Christ comes also today. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, take up the death march, Peter. Fall in line. There is glory that awaits, but a glory that goes through suffering and dying to self. That is the message of the gospel congregation. The message of the gospel is extremely simple, but it is not easy. It is laid forth in black and white on the pages of Scripture, not that we would tamper with it, but that we would proclaim it in its fullness. Congregation, to be spiritually minded is life, but to be carnally minded is death. This day, if you will hear the sound of Christ's voice unto you, will you hear and live? Will you receive him, embrace him in faith today, depart from your wicked way, depart from all your evil thoughts that yet enslave you, and embrace the path of life and holiness? For is there that there is eternal life.